One of the biggest challenges in health policy is providing secure access to care for individuals after they develop an expensive and long-term illness. Another way of saying that is that one of the biggest challenges in health policy is getting people to keep the promises that they make to sick people, to pay the medical bills of sick people. And there are all sorts of ways that uh, different uh, policymakers try to deal with this problem. One way is by having the government uh, pass a law saying that everybody has to, uh, that every insurance company has to cover all comers and may not char charge people higher premiums based on a pre-existing condition. Uh, but there are other ways, and, and that is the way that the federal government chose to address this problem in 2010 when it passed the Affordable Care Act. But there are other ways of addressing this problem, uh, some that have just been developed from the ground up uh, in, uh, in voluntary insurance markets, and we're going to be talking about one of those today. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. And I'm very pleased to have our two guests here to speak about a paper that uh, one of them co-wrote uh, with uh, two of his colleagues. Uh, that guest is Anthony Lasasso. He is the professor in health policy administration uh, at uh, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where he serves as the director of doctoral studies as well. He, in addition to that, he has a dual appointment at the University of Illinois Institute of Government and Public Affairs, and he's the executive director of the American Society of health economists. Uh, Professor Lasasso and his co-authors have put together a, 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 an impressive paper titled Risk Reclassification in the Small Group Health Insurance Market. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's basically a paper about how well the market for insurance for small employers provides that guarantee, makes, uh, keeps those promises to deliver health care to people who develop expensive and long-term conditions. Uh, here to comment on that paper is uh, a, a leader in this field of researching insurance markets and guaranteed uh, renewability in insurance markets, Mark Pauly. Mark Pauly is the Bentheim Professor in the Department of Healthcare Management and Professor of Healthcare Management and uh, uh, Business and Public Policy at the Wharton School and Professor of Economics and in the, School of Fine, in the School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is a former executive director of the American Society president. for Health Economists. President. Oh, I'm sorry, president. OK. I've lost my uh, Secret Service detail. Oh, that's too bad. So here's how uh, uh, this is going to proceed. We're going to hear for, uh, uh, Professor Lasasso present his paper. Mark Pauly is going to present comments on it. I'm going to have some questions for uh, one or both of them, and then we'll open the, uh, the, the floor up to the audience uh, for your questions. If you are watching this online and you have questions, we encourage you to ask them on Twitter using the hashtag uh, CatoHC for healthcare, CatoHC. And with that, I will turn things over to Professor Lasasso. Thanks. Thanks so much, Michael, for the uh, introduction and the invitation here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a real uh, privilege to be, uh, to be presenting here uh, this work uh, with my, uh, uh, I really want to acknowledge uh, first my uh, excellent co-authors, uh, Sebastian Fleitas and Gautam uh, Gaurashankaran. Uh, who uh, have been fantastic to work with on this, and uh, all all errors are are mine here, and 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 they would if they were here they would correct them, I'm sure. So so what we're uh, what we're really doing here, as uh, as Michael said in his intro, is that we're we're really trying to look at kind of a fundamental issue 
a couple of fundamental issues in, uh, in insurance markets. And, and the one, uh, one of them you've probably heard of, adverse selection. Uh, we sometimes hear about this in the context of uh, death spirals and that sort of thing, where the market only serves high-cost individuals. Um, and, uh, but the other one may be somewhat less familiar, uh, and, th and that's the notion of reclassification risk. Um, and, and so what that is basically is when, when you get hit with uh, a health shock, um, these days it's often something with significant persistence. You don't just have uh, a, a, an acute episode of diabetes. Um, diabetes becomes a, a, a lifelong, uh, potentially, um, uh, chronic disease. And so, so, so health shocks uh, not only affect you now, many health shocks not only affect you now, today, but they also affect you into the future. And that has consequences then for your future health insurance premiums. Um, so, so both of these issues, adverse selection and reclassification risk, can lead to market failures <coughs> in the insurance market. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of focus on, on both of these issues uh, from a regulatory perspective. Um, and, uh, and indeed, as mentioned, the Affordable Care Act was really you know, designed to, at least in part, uh, uh, address what were perceived to be the, uh, these issues and, and, and others, but uh, in, in, uh, in health insurance markets. So, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, where these issues can be, um, I think, acutely relevant is, is the small group market, so small businesses. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we all know that, uh, you know, small groups are, you know, they're, they're, they may be, you know, they may collectively add up to significantly less than uh, the large group market, but this 18 million or so uh, uh, enrollees in this market do generate a lot of revenue. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, I think, you know, small groups, this is kind of, uh, these are engines of growth for the economy and an important, uh, an important segment of the market. Um, we're also going to be kind of casting our, our minds, hearkening back to a, a kind of pre-ACA era with our, with our data here to be able to comment on what, what was um, kind of what was the status quo ante uh, pre-ACA in this market. So, so again, to make this point uh, a, a little more salient uh, to you, I mean, think about reclassification risk in the context of a, of a very small group. Uh, not, not at all uncommon, but an employer with five employees. So, you know, when a worker uh, in this small company gets diagnosed with, say, diabetes, and let's assume that there's a $25,000 uh, expected increase in cost going forward with that, uh, for that person, with a, a full experience rating of premiums, that's going to raise uh, uh, the cost to the employer by that $25,000. Um, but then you figure across, you know, how does that get spread across the five employees? So that's everybody in the group then, all five of them, uh, essentially have to, you know, get hit with a shock of, of $5,000 on average uh, per, per year in, in extra premiums. So, so you, what you could see from that is, you know, this is, this is an issue that's sort of acutely relevant in the small group market. It's, it's, it's much more relevant in this setting uh, than, than you'd get in, in, say, a group of 100,000 workers uh, where any one person's 
disease or a chronic, acute or otherwise, isn't really going to affect the entire pool. So, so in terms of in terms of premium variation, small group market, uh, this this uh, it, it's it is relatively understudied compared to certainly Medicare, Medicaid. And large groups, uh, but uh, there is uh, there is some past literature. I don't really have time to go too deeply into this, um, but but the upshot of of much of the work done, with the important exception of my esteemed colleague uh, uh, Mark Pauly, who will talk about this, and I'll I'll allude to it here on occasion. Um, it, Mark has been sort of a, a a voice howling in the wilderness about this for a number of years, quite a few years. Um, and, and so, but, but much of the conventional wisdom on this has been that uh, uh, there, ha there has been, there was a substantial experience rating and reclassification risk in this small group market, uh, again, uh, prior to the ACA. Uh, so, but I think, you know, there are some significant limitations to the work that's been done uh, uh, to establish that. And, and, and nothing really, I, I would say, humbly, uh, you know, on, on the scale of what, uh, what I think we're trying to do here, which I'll, I'll talk about in more detail momentarily. So, uh, so yeah, so in our view, this prior work's not really that conclusive. Uh, and so there is nevertheless an opening, we thought, for, for what we're doing. So our goals, as, uh, as I indicated, we're trying to evaluate the extent of reclassification risk in the small group market, and then try to quantify uh, the welfare loss uh, uh, that uh, that that can result, um, and uh, and then understand the extent to which adverse selection uh, is present in this market, or its its opposite, advantageous selection, um, which is, as the name implies, uh, it's actually indeed the complete opposite of adverse selection, uh, where healthier people are more likely to enroll, uh, given higher uh, premium. So, and I'll talk about that more in a bit. But um, uh, we're going to be able to take advantage of, uh, of, a, of a really unique data set um, uh, that uh, we were able to obtain in partnership with a very large uh, health insurance company, uh, which we cleverly term USIC. Um, we had another, we had other acronyms here, but uh, I'll stick with that one for now. Um, and um, and so we'll have four years of uh, of their data, claims data, premium data, uh, and, uh, and so <clears throat> that's what we'll, we'll uh, be using here. So, so what we're going to do here, just by way of an overview, uh, briefly, is that we're going to develop a simple model here of, of uh, insurance in the small group market, um, model uh, uh, the uh, reclassification risk. We're, we're really trying to get at, instead of estimating a, a full-blown structural economic model of the market, we want to estimate these, these kind of sufficient statistics uh, in order to understand reclassification risk. So, so pass-through is going to be something I talk about repeatedly. So this pass-through coefficient, that's going to be kind of as the name implies. It's going to be when there's a shock to, to the health status of a risk group, uh, to what extent does that shock pass through in terms of increased premiums? So, so I'll keep saying that uh, uh, repeatedly, but that's, that's the basic idea. And I might hit you with some math, uh, but don't worry, it, it won't be on the final. Uh, so you won't have to worry that much about it or take too many notes. But, um, 
And then, as I said, we're going to talk about adverse selection uh, and, or, and or, ad, well, or advantageous selection. So what we're going to be able to do out of all this hardware that I'm going to sketch for you here, not in gory detail, um, uh, but this is going to give us uh, the means to be able to calculate these, uh, in effect, simulate the, the potential welfare loss uh, from uh, reclassification risk under alternative regimes. Under, a, a, well, the status quo, we want to know, well, what was it? Uh, uh, and then how it uh, might be affected under uh, full experience rating. And then how it might look under community rating, which we can, which we can simulate with our, with our model and our data. So uh, I'm, in the interest of time, I'm not going to spend too much on the prior literature. Um, I'll just suffice to say that we do indeed add to the literature in important ways. Uh, so I'm going to stop there on that. So the model overview. Uh, so so basically, the the uh, yeah we'll have a we'll have a simplified two-period model. But the, but the basic idea here that we're after here is is this this pass-through uh, coefficient here, which um, is going to be uh, gamma because uh, you have to throw in some Greek. Um, and uh, uh, to, to sometimes confuse people, but uh, uh, hopefully to make things clearer, I guess. Uh, but the average, uh, so, so what, that, what this uh, gamma here is going to reflect is exactly what I said before, the extent to which a risk uh, a shock, a health risk shock at a group, uh, at, a, at a small company, translates into uh, first higher costs, so the extent to which uh, risk shocks affect spending, healthcare spending. That's going to be gamma. Um, and then we're going to have a, uh, a beta here, uh, which is going to be the extent to which health risk shocks uh, affect premiums, pass through to premiums. And if they are equal, that's going to be the case of full experience rating. So meaning that 100% of the of the health risk shock, uh, the spending associated with health risk shocks get pa get passed through to premiums. Um, if, however, beta is uh, less than gamma, then then that's uh, that's evidence of uh, of of some kind of risk classification, risk protection, um, and so we'll talk about mechanisms for all of that. Uh, at the limit. Uh, if beta is zero, that means zero pass through. Nothing, nothing goes through. Um, there's a there's a health risk shock, and premiums are not affected. That's essentially what you have in community rating. And of course, the ACA brought about community rating. Um, but you know, I I think it's still a valid question to ask: to what extent was the market already providing reclassification risk protection? If if beta is equal to gamma. Uh, at, at this time, at this pre-ACA time, then it's suggestive of serious reclassification risk for enrollees in this market, which is, again, mind you, what the anecdotal evidence was and probably continues to be around a small group market uh, uh, enrollees. But our point is that it hasn't really been estimated um, all that well. Mark did some work, though, uh, which is good. So. Uh, okay, so here's here's some math here to um, uh, just to uh, 
uh, uh, throw you off here or make you nod off. But uh, So part of this is also going to be testing, like I said, for, for these other stories that you hear a lot about, adverse selection in the small group market. So we'll have a way of, of decomposing that, and that's essentially what this slide is telling us here, uh, that we can, we can estimate whether there's, like I said, adverse selection, so whether the insurance pool uh, uh, in the face of, 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 of a risk shock uh, reverts to insurance just for the sickest people, that's the adverse selection story, probably familiar, or the extent to which it becomes insurance for, for healthier people. Um, in the face of risk shocks. That's the advantageous selection story, for which you know, there is evidence in other contexts, um, but again, has not been estimated in the small group context. So we are uh, you know, the first to look at that. And, and, then, and then, frankly, just to be able to put this into some kind of context of how big is this effect? How, how much uh, 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 selection is there in, in either direction? Do people, in other words, drop out of the pool uh, differentially do, do healthier people drop out of the pool and sicker people remain when there's a health risk shock or vice versa? And that's really the question that we're doing, uh, that we're looking at here. So quick overview of the data. Uh, it's from one big uh, insurance company. Uh, we have data from these 10 states here that are listed. Um, we have very detailed information, uh, uh, very detailed administrative information, enrollee level, we have claim level detail, we have employer level data on premiums and enrollment. Uh, we have this over, over the period 2012 through 2015. Um, the, the basic strategy is going to be to look at um, um, uh, uh, data uh, in 2013 through 2015 on premiums and, and, and healthcare spending and then base that on the year prior. So that's why we'll have 2012 through 2014 data uh, to compute risk scores and uh, using kind of standard and established methodologies. Um, and and so, so we're going to really be holding, holding constant the, the set of employees, uh, sorry, employers that we look at. We want three years of continuous uh, data on the employers. Um, Here's just a graph of the states that we're looking at. These, these, are, uh, these are not random states. I will I'll, I'll just point out that um, these, uh, in the pre-ACA era, all tended to be relatively light touch from a regulatory perspective. So um, none of these were community-rated states. These were states that uh, uh, had, uh, every state had, uh, had risk rating uh, limits, but these had tended to have the widest bands uh, among states in the country. So again, not not a not a random sample, uh, but I think that that definitely works in our favor in terms of the study uh, that we're trying to do here. We want to see the extent to which um, market forces at this time, um, at this pre-ACA time, uh, influenced um, reclassification risk. Uh, uh, it, it, there, there are pre-existing regulations that, that were nationally mandated, so these, these are all states that uh, had guaranteed renewal um, uh, at, at the time as well for small group policies. So, so again, uh, the empirical approach is to try to recover these two parameters here. Um, and, and to remind you, you know, again, one of them is the pass-through of health risk shock to premium, and the other is the pass-through of health risk shocks to ex uh, healthcare expenditures. And we're going to use, uh, 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 again, in the interest of time, I'm just going to, I'm going to, 
I'm going to assure you that we're using uh, uh, robust methods here to try to estimate that, regression methods. Um, all the details are in the paper and uh, to, uh, that, uh, that's available online. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so, so that's, that's essentially how we're going to look at that. Uh, the basic idea here, again, for the beta, the pass-through from risk to premiums, same idea. We really want to see how premiums are, uh, are affected as a function of the risk scores that we'll be calculating. Uh, and so, so that's, uh, and, th and then finally, we're going to uh, use this uh, similar approach uh, to, to try to disentangle the selection piece. Um, so again, regression models, um, robust approach, details in the paper. So, so the first one here, the uh, impact uh, of, uh, of the risk scores on, on claims, on healthcare spending. So what we see, what we have here is just a summary table of, uh, of, of the regressions that we estimated. The, the basic upshot of this is that a one unit increase in R, the risk score, that's the average uh, risk score at a company, increases claims cost by an average of about $4,000. Uh, and that's robust to different specifications and all that. So um, lest you think that these risk scores don't actually measure anything, I mean, they do. And you know, the, uh, a change in the risk score going from a one to two, uh, at where one is baseline average health status and two is something you know, quite a bit worse and it is associated with uh, you know, significantly more spending. So, um, so the next question then is, well, what happens to premiums? We see that spending goes up, you know, to go back here, spending goes up unambiguously, $4,000 uh, per person, okay, uh, when the risk score increases like that. So what happens to premiums? Well, so we, we estimate this a number of different ways, and we wind up with, uh, and, and all of them have merits, um, but we wind up with a, a pass-through estimate uh, that's anywhere from $200 or about $213 to under a different specification as high as around $1,700. So, so that's, that's, that's a pretty wide range. Five to 43% of claims costs get passed through. Um, we, do tend to, uh, we do tend to think that the methods uh, uh, that, uh, are, that provide the lower estimate are, are a bit more Robust, given the the, uh, the level of controls that we include in those models, um, but you know, full you know, nothing up our sleeves, full transparency. We are uh, providing a, a you know a, a range of estimates. the The point is not that the range is big, uh, but the what's not in the range is 100 percent. So if or 150 percent for that matter. So if you were worried, if you thought that you know, boy, these insurers really. You know they do. They they are going to take advantage. They are going to pass through the full uh, full cost uh, of a health shock onto employees. Um, or uh, I'm sorry, that the insurers are going to pass through. Uh, you know the full shock um, to the their uh, their employer uh, uh, customers. You know we're not really seeing evidence like that. So um, we did a lot of robustness checks. Um, I can show you all of them, but I'm going to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip that, talk about, well, why is pass-through pass relatively low? Um, and there's a number of potential explanations. Um, 
One, and, and we were able to check out a number of these as well, so maybe pass-through occurs slowly over time. We re-estimate models using lag risk scores. Doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to change the prediction. It's not happening. It's not that it, you know, it, it's, an, it's, it's not uh, N, uh, a T minus two effect that you need to look another year back because the insurers are slow. It's not that. Um, market power, is this uh, something that you see differentially in highly concentrated insurer markets? Um, we look at that. We have, like I said, 10 states. There's variation in insurer market concentration across those states. And we don't really find dramatic or statistically significant differences uh, based on concentration. Um, there's a story about search frictions, um, that, that health plan uh, search, either you know, at the employer level might, uh, and, and some good quality work that's been done on this subject. Uh, that our back of the envelope calculations don't really suggest that that could account for what we're seeing. And then the other story then, the fourth one here, is that the consumer inertia and, uh, uh, but also um, the implicit long run contracts, uh, or, uh, impl implicit long run commitment. Um, and I think Mark will have more to say about that. Um, but that's, that's the one that we think, um, you know, whether it's via inertia or something explicit uh, going on, that's kind of, after we rule out the first three, that, that's the one where we're kind of hanging our hat. Um, and then the selection piece, I'm just going to, in the interest of time, I'm just going to say that selection turns out to be a very small factor in this market in our data. And we're able to, again, see the enrollees who drop out and differentially look at how, you know, how do they compare um, to, to those who stay. And we see, uh, we see a slight advantageous selection story. So it is, it is not even in the direction of adverse selection uh, where you, know, you get uh, health insurance just for the sick. Uh, it, it, it trends the other way, but it's very tiny uh, and as we see here. So, so the last thing I just wanna, I wanna do briefly is just talk about the simulations that we run. If I could borrow a little time here. Um, is, is, and, and, and the basic idea here is to show uh, how under different scenarios um, the, uh, our, our model, uh, our, again, empirically driven model uh, 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 looks over a 10-year time horizon in terms of the welfare loss that we see. Um, and so, so what we've done here on this figure here is we have different, we have basically different models here. The, the, the point that I just want to make uh, is, is the topmost line here. Um, which is showing the largest effects. Um, uh, these, are, these are welfare costs. So these are neg you want to view these as kind of negative effects here, as bad things ha that are happening. That's the one that is uh, consistent with a hypothetical full experience rating, full pass-through of the cost. And then the bottom two, which are very close to each other, that, uh, that green line, and, and then the sort of, um, I'm bad with colors, but the, the, the bottom most line, that's community rating. And so, so what we see there is that our, our preferred estimates essentially look nearly indistinguishable from community rate, from a hypothetical community rated world here for premiums. So what that means then is that, you know, the, uh, uh, what was happening absent regulation uh, in the small group market, uh, at that pre in that pre-ACA time period, 
was essentially giving us um, a, the same sort of results that you see under community rating. And that was, I'll admit, not what we really expected to, to see. But that's what the data are telling us. Um, there is, uh, this, is, this is showing uh, 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 out-of-pocket spending. Out-of-pocket spending is, is non-trivial in this market. So, um, uh, so people, uh, but, but the point again, the story is the same here. Community, the hypothetical uh, simulated community rating here looks almost on top of what we found with uh, the status quo ante uh, in, in this small group market. Uh, and this just combines them both overall. Same story here. So last slide. Um, yes, I told you what we did, and, and so uh, the main findings then is that the pass-through, 5 to 43 uh, percent from uh, uh, of expected costs to premiums, um, the end result is that the, it, it, we, get, we get estimates that are much closer to community rating than they are to experience rating, um, and so it suggests that this insurer at least uh, was its pricing pro uh, policy did, in fact, provide substantial risk protection uh, versus you know, the hypothetical full experience rating, which, it, it, to the best of our estimation, was not actually happening at all in these markets. And then we had very limited evidence of adverse uh, selection uh, in this market as well. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Tony. Uh I don't know whether they circulated a picture of me for this, but I've grown a beard uh, since that picture. That's because if I'm going to be a voice crying in the wilderness, I thought I'd try to look a little more like John the Baptist. Uh, the long hair comes later, but uh, certainly this uh, uh, message that there is an alternative to community rating uh, is something I'm going to talk about by way of uh, giving some of the literature background that Tony skipped over, and then make some comments on his paper, and then talk about uh, policy implications. So the thing that, um, uh, that, uh, that I've been crusading for for many years has the off-putting formal title of um, guaranteed renewability at class average rates in individual health insurance and in small group health insurance. Uh, it, you can translate that into English by saying, when you, after you buy the insurance, whatever your risk level is there, the insurer then promises not to come back and re-underwrite. They're not going to, even if they gather information, and they will because they're looking at your claims, indicating that you're a high risk, or they could go through your garbage and try to find evidence that you've uh, uh, been taking medicines off the cuff. Uh, they won't do that because they promise not to do it. They promise to charge you not the same premium next year as this year because health premiums, it's a law of nature, increase every year but not to single you out for a higher premium based on uh, what happened to you last year in terms of pr proxies for your risk. So that's sort of the, the fundamental idea that, uh, 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 of guaranteed renewability. And um, uh, as Tony mentioned, this has not been as, as important a topic of conversation as I think it should be, although it has uh, at least met the status of getting criticism from some people as um, you know, hooey or uh, not working as perfectly as um, you theorists think, which of course is always a fair criticism. Uh, but, uh, but I still think there's an awful lot to it. Uh, and so um, the, the, the problem that uh, is addressed by this feature 
of health insurance that, as Tony mentioned, predated the Affordable Care Act is the problem of changing risk, that uh, actually two things happen to you or can happen to you next year. One is you get sick and you have a lot of medical bills. Oh, incidentally, I think Tony did a great service to the world by, by labeling his company you sick rather than you well because after all, it's not health insurance, it's sickness insurance that we buy, right? The only thing it protects is the health of our bank accounts so that we won't get depleted by bills, but it doesn't necessarily make us healthier, although perhaps for some uh, low-income uninsured people it does. But nevertheless, the punchline is uh, you actually are at risk of two things. One is you're going to have bills this year that you could use some help in covering, and then the other is, uh, and uh, if you, uh, you might worry, well, will my premiums jump up the, at least the rest of my life? Well, not the rest of my life, till I go on Medicare, thank God for Medicare, uh, at least in this context, uh, or till I get better uh, and get rid of my chronic condition, because people do, or they get, uh, figure out how to live with it. Uh, but what, whatever it is, I'm going to be paying higher premiums, and that's another threat uh, to my lifetime wealth overall, and certainly the stability of my consumption from year to year. So I would like to protect, I would like to buy two kinds of insurance is the punchline. Uh, I would like to buy insurance against the risk of an unexpected health event, and I would like to buy insurance against the follow-on risk of unexpectedly high premiums for a long period of time. So that's sort of the punchline here. Now, Ken Arrow, as uh, all health economists know, and probably many of you have heard, had wrote the definitive paper in 1993, uh, being such a nice man. Uh, he uh, said a lot of things that were useful. One was um, that institutions developed to handle the peculiarities of health insurance. Now, Ken tend to think of things like nonprofit firms and government as stepping in. But uh, in this case, uh, the market has actually, or did actually, step in uh, and develop an institutional arrangement to protect against reclassification risks. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm talking about Ken Arrow. So, uh, so that's basically the message that there, uh, it, it renews my childhood faith in the functioning of the market, uh, that there was a need. Uh, and uh, uh, the market actually evolved a method uh, to deal with it, uh, uh, if only it would be allowed to do so. Uh, and uh, it would have been allowed to do so, but for lawyers being created, but God must have had a reason for creating them. In any case, uh, that's what happened. Uh, let's see. So uh, it, it, this seems like an arcane and, uh, subject, gar uh, guaranteed renewable at class average rates. Why don't more people know about it? And my punchline here is, whoops, how do I get the screen to change? You just one slide behind the door. Oh. Oh, okay. There's actually been a lot of publicity of the idea. So this isn't exactly the screenshot we wanted, but you know what comes at, if you've seen this commercial, at least at the 6.30 News, it's a useful break from the pharmaceutical commercials about bodily functions that you don't want to hear. If you've seen this commercial, you know the next thing they'll say is, uh, 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 we're going to protect, they're going to raise your rates. So the reason you should buy Liberty Mutual Insurance is because with other insurers, they're going to raise your rates. You know, if you have a little auto accident so small that you could correct it with a pen, they're going to raise your rates. And we at Liberty Mutual will give you accident forgiveness insurance. We won't raise your rates for one accident. It's 
what they say. And it's true. I actually did a little bit of background search on this. Now, if you have a second accident and you're covered by Liberty Mutual, they're going to kill you uh, in terms of the rates. They don't say that. But at least for the first accident, they ignore it. Well, why would a person want that other than being able to be on in a commercial on TV? Well, the answer is the accident, of course, it wasn't my fault. No matter what it was, why did that tree jump out in front of me? Uh, well, whatever the reason is, it might not be your fault. It might have been a random event, uh, and uh, you just, you know, forgot that the bicycles were on the roof of the car when you drove into the garage or whatever it was. And uh, you want to be protected against that if you're a risk-averse person, which we think most people are. So that's sort of the punchline that uh, uh, guaranteed renewability is really nothing more than accident forgiveness insurance uh, applied to health care. And the demand for it arises because although having uh, a medical event, as Tony mentions, like being diagnosed with diabetes predicts future medical spending, likewise, actuaries will tell you having an accident is a pretty good predictor of having more accidents for auto insurance, even though it wasn't your fault and you're better than average driver. Uh, nevertheless, some of it could be random and you want to be protected against that. So that's sort of the punchline that uh, we actually do have this kind of insurance when it comes to auto insurance. Liberty Mutual standard policy comes standard with um, uh, the uh, guaranteed renewability at class average rates. Um, uh, other insurers actually will sell it to you as an option. So that one commercial where they say, no, you, pick, you didn't pick the wrong plan, you picked the wrong insurer, that's when I talk back to the TV because you could have actually bought, uh, bought it from another insurer, but they're not pushing it as much. So that's the punchline there. Okay, well, uh, how does... What actually happens when it comes to health insurance? And as Tony mentioned, uh, I, along with Brad Herring, my former student, now colleague, uh, uh, is um, uh, at Johns Hopkins, uh, uh, investigated this. Uh, we actually started uh, by writing a paper um, which, whose original title was A Novel and Extremely Brilliant Idea for Dealing with the Problem of Risk Variation in Health Insurance where we showed that it would be theoretically possible to charge an extra premium uh, for people, say, when they're young, to cover them for this event. I might get diabetes. And they would want to do that if they were risk averse. And then that would prevent them from being hit with higher premiums uh, later on in life. They'd be able to pay kind of the good risk premium pretty much for the rest of their life up until they go on Medicare. We thought this was a great invention. Uh, there's a, a famous, semi-famous economist at, now at Stanford, John Cochran, who you might know, have read about, who also invented it. John still thinks he invented it. But uh, we, uh, though, decided to take the further step of getting a little money, thank you, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and looking at what actually happens in health insurance markets. And it turns out it was already there. So I think I put that there. 80% uh, 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 of individual insurance, according to, of course, very rough data because it's from the dark ages before the ACA, but 80% of individual insurance policies uh, carried guaranteed renewability as a feature. Uh, that's actually a fairly common feature in um, disability insurance and life insurance, too. You don't have to, you can buy an ad, a rider on your life insurance where you don't have to have another medical exam after the term runs out uh, and they'll just renew it. Uh, for money. Insurers will do anything for money. That's an important message here, uh, including being nice if you pay them enough. But uh, if you don't pay them very much, they'll be nasty. 
Okay, so uh, uh, that's basically the story. Uh, so it, um, after we uh, looked at this information, this data, we thought, uh, well, what is the contribution now of our original paper? And we thought, well, what it does prove is, sure, it works in practice, but can it work in theory? And we proved that it did, and so did John Cochran. But then Barrett and I decided to look at uh, some real data, and a very, we um, uh, it, it had a study uh, very similar to Tony's, but in the individual market, not the small group market. Uh, and uh, basically, the last dot point here tells you what we found. We uh, had some data that basically had three necessary ingredients data on uh, individuals' premiums in the individual market over time, uh, data on their, uh, uh, their uh, uh, expenses over time, and data on the presence or absence of chronic conditions, the answer to the question, did a doctor ever tell you you have X? And so what we did was basically regressed the expenses in each year for a person on the presence of chronic condition which ones, how many years, also age, also gender, and we actually got a pretty good regression to predict what their expenses were, it fitted pretty well. And then we asked, kind of as Tony did, okay, we have this predicted expected expense, what's the elasticity of actual premiums to predicted expected expense? In our case, the average was around 0.5, but that all came from age. Once you took out age, having a chronic condition or not having a chronic condition didn't make any difference in the premium you paid. Well, how could that be? The answer is that's how it would be if you had guaranteed renewability because it promises not to raise your premium if you get a chronic condition. So at least for chronic conditions that were acquired after the person first bought insurance, uh, there's a little noise there. So maybe some people paid a little bit more. We wouldn't necessarily preclude that. But basically the punchline was you, you had the same guarantee of premiums independent of uh, your uh, uh, risk as you got from guaranteed renewability. But the beauty part was, and you did that all yourself. You and the market. Nobody had to order you to do it. It was utility maximizing it to do it, or incentive compatible, as we called it. So that's sort of the main punchline there. Uh, is just a little, few little gory details. If you're young, and I see some young faces out there, if you guys were to buy guaranteed renewability on top of your short-term health insurance policy that you may switch to after you get fired by the Cato Institute and are out on your own but don't want to be a slacker, uh, you'll, over, you'll overpay relative to your claims a fair amount at a young age. But if you hang in there with that insurance, it goes down to almost zero by the time you start accumulating gray hair. So that's at least something to look for. One of the few things to look forward to about accumulating gray hair. Okay, so that basically I've already talked about the theory, it's incentive compatible. Uh, th then the evidence, we actually then uh, uh, not just looked at the resp responsiveness of premiums to risk, but we had the data tell us what would be the um, time path over age of guaranteed renewable premiums, taking account of the fact that as you age, you pick up more risks. That's the bad news, but the good news is you're not going to be around for that much longer to have to bear those higher premiums the older you are. So the two, to some extent, cancel out. The age wage, the age gradient is not really um, so steep as you would think based on uh, uh, risk alone. Uh, but the punchline was that the actual pattern of individual insurance premiums came very close to the theoretically predicted uh, age uh, uh, age gradient as a 
a function of the uh, 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 higher, on, uh, higher incidence of chronic conditions as people age. Uh, so, so that's sort of uh, one piece of evidence in favor of this. It actually works in practice. Can we make it work in theory? Another piece of evidence is a short piece that I wrote with Rob Lieberthal where we looked at what happens to people, uh, what, um, when are people more likely to become uninsured? When they're in group insurance or when they're in individual insurance? Group insurance, you know, has all sorts of advantages. It has tax breaks. It has the advantages of lower administrative cost because of economies of scale. It has more, and for that reason, largely, it has more generous coverage. It's more attractive. And what we found was people who were in health, who were healthy, fair, uh, excellent, fair, good health, were more likely to become uninsured uh, next year if they had um, uh, individual insurance with heavy loading than um, if they had group insurance. But if they had group insurance and their health was fair or poor, they were much more likely to become uninsured than if they had individual insurance because with group insurance, you're likely to lose your coverage, especially if your health prevents you from working. Uh, whereas with individual insurance, whether you're working or not, you still pay the individual insurance premium, you can keep up your coverage. Uh, so hopefully you save some money to tie you over uh, and it could work perfectly. So it was actually better. And uh, just, uh, I wanna put, show that I'm on the side here, a feminist, I had to write this for my wife and daughter. Uh, it, again, another injustice to women, uh, guaranteed renewability, uh, uh, no, injustice for women. Uh, offsetting feature, guaranteed renewability is more expensive for men than women because women's expenses are averaged, uh, are much less variable over the life pattern because of uh, childbirth and child, childbearing uh, reproductive expenses. So, until the 60s, in which case uh, b women uh, have taken better care of themselves, so they uh, have to pay more. Okay, well, uh, here's Tony's paper, and, um, and as uh, I, I guess I've already implied, I think it's great uh, by being able to, before the data gets away from us, because we don't have a control group for the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately we covered the whole country. I mean, couldn't we have left that? Well, sort of not Massachusetts, but uh, couldn't we have left out some some states just as control states? But no, it doesn't work that way in politics. So we have past history only, uh, but the past history of, um, and I wasn't aware of this either, but the past history of small group insurance looks very much like the past history of individual insurance in terms of protection against reclassification risk. Now, there should be some uh, averaging of risk within the group if you have 20 people in your group. Uh, as Tony mentioned, the uh, huge jump in expected expense that a single individual would experience gets averaged over all of the other people in the group. Uh, and there's an issue of worker turnover, of course. Turnover is an issue in all of these estimates and, and all of these questions. And that's actually, for somebody, if anybody here is looking for a great PhD thesis, we need to know what happens to these people after they leave. Where do they go? Uh, and how does that work out? But uh, the basic punchline is, uh, if there was no turnover, um, people in the small group, all the employees would say, boss, please buy guaranteed renewable coverage. We don't want our premiums to jump just because Joe gets diabetes if we didn't know that it could have been any of us, but one of us gets unlucky. Uh, if there's turnover, um, the low risks will still want GR coverage as long as they plan to stay. Uh, and uh, it's sometimes criticized uh, for that uh, group insurance causes job lock. Uh, I'll just say I've never been convinced that that's very important either empirically or from a policy point of view, but um, 
a GR in this case would not produce job lock uh, uh, if the person could go to another group and still get GR coverage. So uh, I'll just go over this quickly. So uh, this is a great idea in theory, but in practice, of course, this is a big country. There's got to be sleazy people in it. So insurance brokers recommend this feature to future buyers. Uh, and so you should never buy health insurance by yourself at home alone. You should always have a, a trusted agent at your right hand. Uh, my neighbor, the insurance agent, told me to say that. Um, uh, because they will tell you which insurers do not chisel and which ones have good guarantee renewability behaviors, whatever they say in their statements. There is no explicit statement of guaranteed renewability in most insurance policies, although it has been required for individual insurance and maybe small group insurance, I don't know, since the HIPAA uh, Act in 1996, so it antedates um, uh, 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 the ACA by uh, more than 10 years, uh, by nearly 10 years. Uh, there have been some sneaky firms. Uh, uh, some firms have reneged on the GR promise. They went back and re-underwrote. And you hear some of these, and there's at least three people that have been affected by this in this country. But, um, but usually the roof fell in on the insurance company that tried that from the regulators and from the customers because people don't like sleazy insurers once they find out what they really are like. And then there's a slightly more sneaky but slightly more legal way uh, to, to deal with, to get out of your promise to pay, and that's to close a underwriting group and open a new one and then say only you healthy people are allowed to be in this new group that's going to have lower premiums because it's going to be healthy people and you high risks aren't, but at least my friendly neighborhood insurance agent knows that that's not what you would want to begin with. You wouldn't want a company because you could just as well be the unfortunate person who became the high risk. And then this is a German objection. The Germans say Germans have GR coverage for their individual insurance, in market insurance, and they say you're married to your insurer uh, because you, your insurer has promised not to raise your premiums. But if you leave your insurer, the promise isn't binding anymore. And so, uh, of course, the right advice there is my dad's advice when I was a kid. You should have thought of that beforehand. That was actually his advice when I was going to get married, too. Have you thought this through? Uh, but uh, And it turns out a prenup is possible. In, uh, I can go into details if anybody wants to know about that. Policy implications. Um, this would be my favorite. So let's have everyone buy basic coverage that contains GR feature. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a libertarian, uh, at least every other Thursday. I don't think you should push people around, but it just seems so sensible to want to ensure not only, I mean, running around without health insurance, it's like running around without your trousers on, uh, uh, and running around without guaranteed renewability, waiting for the sky to fall on you is also a dumb idea. So um, having government try to dissuade people from dumb ideas actually I think is a legitimate function of government, assuming it knows what are dumb ideas and what are not. Uh, so there, and there's no need for, for prohibition on risk rating for future coverage for those who do the right thing, which is buy insurance now and then have guaranteed renewability. The only people who get in trouble with exclusion of pre-existing conditions, after all, are people who have dropped their insurance, which they weren't supposed to do, right? That's the whole idea. So uh, now there can be reasons, you know, life is hard and things can come up that uh, cause people to lose coverage, most important of which actually, according to my work with Rob Lieberthal, is getting let go by your company when you're a high risk. 
uh, although there is a theoretical protection against that that could be written into your, your, uh, your health insurance benefit contract. Uh, and that's the last point here. So, but still, it's a little bit hard to sell that to employers. Why don't you cover your employees uh, even if they leave and go to another employer? Uh, because after all, they offer health insurance to try to attract and retain the best qualified workers. But workers should value that. So, the, uh, so there can be still some loose ends and some serious problems, uh, but uh, there's a, at least a device here, a market-based device, that can um, uh, solve the problem of, uh, of, of making transfers to people unlucky enough to become high risks in ways that do not discourage low risks from obtaining coverage. They actually want coverage with GR features that's more valuable to them than just coverage with single, single, uh, single period coverage. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, I think we might actually have a control group in this short-term market, uh, uh, which, thanks to a new rule issued by uh, the federal government, uh, is uh, much more flexible and uh, can be combined with a standalone renewal guarantee, and so you get that feature. I just had a couple of uh, uh, comments on, uh, on on Tony's paper, and then we'll get to questions. This really is an impressive paper. I was telling Tony earlier that this is going to be this will be an impressive paper, even if the results don't reproduce, because uh, because it's just a, such an impressive concept and design, and they're very thorough. But um, I, I, I hope the results do reproduce. Um, I hope there are data out there that'll help us, uh, that, that'll let other scholars look at this. But I couldn't shake the, the thought of, that kept recurring to me as I was reading this paper. This is such wonderful news that uh, I, I'm not sure I can believe it. And the reason for that is <coughs> there's really, there's really uh, a startling conclusion in this paper and a very startling conclusion. The startling conclusion is that markets did such a good job of holding down premiums for the sick in the small group market, that there wasn't much room for the ACA to improve things by imposing uh, that, that system of government price controls that we call community rating that says the government can't charge sick people or sick employer groups more than they charge healthy employer groups. So that was the startling conclusion, but the very startling conclusion was that all this held together, markets did this without even having contractual provisions in the insurance contracts that required insurers to do this, that required insurers to hold down the premiums for sick people. Now, why is that startling? Because it means that someone could have, some other insurance company could have come in and offer insurance to the low-risk employer groups, the healthier-than-average employer groups at lower premiums and disrupted the whole arrangement because then the sicker-than-average groups would see their premiums go up. Uh, uh, and the, but that's what this paper concludes is that even though there's an incentive for other insurance companies to do that, no one did. No one disrupted the arrangement, which is remarkable. It reminds me of the economist's joke where, you know, the old economist's joke where there's two economists walking down the street and the fir first economist looks on the sidewalk and he says, look, there's $20 on the sidewalk. And the second economist looks at the $20 and he says, no, if there were really $20 there, someone would have picked it up already. The butt of that joke is the second economist. The second economist who denies the existence of the $20. But what this paper is actually saying is, no, the second economist is right. There is no $20 there. Um, and so and what, what they're actually saying in this paper is that uh, the other insurers aren't snat snatching up that $20. And therefore, that $20, that $20 really isn't there. And they uh, offer a theory as to, uh, as to why that is. Um, 
and they offer so many robustness checks and test for, uh, test for and reject so many other theories that I have to conclude, and I think we have to conclude that this actually is a plausible result. Markets were protecting the sick from higher premiums even uh, before regulation in the form of the ACA's community rating price controls. Uh, in fact, I would say that this paper may even overstate the already small additional benefits that it claims community rating might provide in terms of holding down premiums for the sick because uh, they mentioned that, um, well, uh, they do talk, I think you'd talk about reduced benefits uh, in the small group market prior to the ACA. You found evidence that I think deductibles got higher under these arrangements, uh, exposing workers to a little more out-of-pocket uh, expense. The, yeah, those effects were actually really small, actually. Right, they were they uh, were yeah, really small, right. but I, so, I believe... Words, firms weren't adjusting I believe lot. that yeah. for your community rating counterfactual, you were not assuming any erosion in benefits. Right. When, in fact, there's uh, a pretty substantial literature about how community rating does cause an erosion in benefits. And so if community rating under the ACA is causing an erosion in benefits in the small group market, then the additional benefits of moving to community rating, which you already say are smaller, are even smaller than you claim. Uh, and uh, we talked about this before, but if the, the paper assumes that there's zero pass-through of a firm, that under community rating, if a firm's uh, average uh, health risk goes up, uh, the paper assumes that under community rating, there's no pass-through of that additional health risk into their premiums because uh, the insurer can't uh, 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 underwrite. Uh, of course, the actual pass-through is non-zero because any increase in anyone's health risk increases premiums for everyone in a community-rated environment. Uh, but it's probably small. But if it's not negligible, if, if that, if that pass-through is not negligible, then uh, if there's any uh, measurable pass-through under community rating, then again, the additional benefits of moving to community rating are even smaller. So um, uh, a couple of... Uh, because I think this, this paper is, uh, the, the, you know, the news here is so good, I want to push back on uh, a couple of things and see how, uh, 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 see how, how uh, good, not how good the news is, but how reliable it is. So uh, as Mark mentioned, the small group market has lots of features that, or at least one important feature that the individual market does not, which is that in order to have insurance through the small group market, you have to work for an employer. Um, uh, so uh, his, he mentioned his paper with uh, Robert Lieberthal where what they found was that if you have small group coverage, then compared to either large group, large employer coverage or individual market coverage, uh, if you're in poor health uh, in, in a, a small group plan, you're twice as likely to end up uninsured in the ne next year if you have small group coverage compared to individual or large group coverage. What does that mean for your study? Does that mean that uh, does that suggest that one of the reasons the uh, premiums, uh, the market appeared to be holding premiums down so much is that uh, a lot of the high risks were leaving employer plans, uh, leaving these small group plans because they got sick and couldn't work anymore? No, uh, thanks, Michael. That's, um, appreciate the comments, and, uh, and, and, and it's a great question. I mean, I, I, we, we quantify explicitly uh, that, uh, that uh, facet of... Uh, uh, of the kind of dynamics that happen from from one year to the next in terms of, you know, we yes we do we do have this slight uh, it, it's this small advantageous selection so meaning that the uh, when faced with a health risk shock uh, at the group level uh, the uh, the following year you tend to have a, a slight 
decrease in the number of uh, in the in the sicker enrollees in that pool, um, and that's what you're referring to. But but again, I I, I want to stress that we're able to quantify it, and and it's really tiny in the grand scheme of things. So it's really dwarfed by you know it's it's dwarfed by even you know the, it, by by the other by the estimates of um, of, uh, of of pass through and and so. Uh, so, so it's it's a very small piece of this, and that was you know that was a, a little bit surprising, but uh, you know so I don't. In other words, I I guess to say it differently, you know we don't see that sort of mass exodus of uh, of sick people that, and that's the mechanism to hold down premiums. That's not what we're finding at all. Okay, regarding the uh, benefits of um, uh, community rating, as in your community rating counterfactual, you. Um, when you create your community rating counterfactual and compare the pre-ATA market to uh, what premiums would look like there, you're still, the, the, the community rating counterfactual still only includes all of the employers that you are looking at in the data set you're given by USIC, the insurance company. Um, but in a community rating environment, will there be additional employers who are participating in the market who are maybe excluded uh, from the market before? Because as you say, when... Um, when USIC initially, uh, uh, in the, f the first year in which USIC sold coverage to a small employer group, they would underwrite them. They would charge them a premium that, uh, that uh, corresponded to the average risk in that group. And so were there, uh, you know, did USIC turn down some small groups because their health risk is too high? Or were there uh, small employers who got such high quotes from USIC that they declined coverage and, went and did not offer coverage at all? Well, yeah. I think, again, great, great question, great point. I think, I think that's certainly plausible. That's that's out of sample. Unfortunately, we don't know who uh, who inquired about um, you know which firms inquired about obtaining a policy, and uh, and and you know chose not to, or were you know given something, uh, given a premium uh, that they didn't you know, didn't like and didn't find palatable, so they didn't purchase the insurance uh, or went elsewhere. So that. And that that remains, I think, an open question. There's still, I think, a lot of room, um, you know, for for future work, and that that would be that would be a, a, a nice area, I think, to look at. I, I don't know if Mark has any further comments on that, but well, this feature obviously can only uh, start from wherever you are when yeah. you first buy insurance. And um, one problem with groups is uh, compared to individuals, individuals can start when they're young, and except for a relatively small number of conditions not covered as disability, uh, um, the, 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 which you know, it still remains a social problem. Uh, the great bulk of people at age 26 or 30 don't have pre-existing conditions. So those, those like a lot of things, they pile up as you get older. Uh, so, uh, but, but this won't work uh, if you're already a high risk. It's the usual metaphor, you can't profitably sell insurance to somebody whose house is on fire, or you can't sell hurricane insurance, I guess, in North Carolina today. <laughs> um, another uh, uh, determinant of whether this, this arrangement was that, that uh, your paper says was uh, an implicit uh, and stable guaranteed renewable feature of, uh, of uh, this company's products in the, in the small group market was um, an, an important component of sustainability is can they keep on doing it? So uh, what, what do you know about this insurance company's profitability during that time? Were they making money? 
uh, on these products during that period? Uh, I, I, I don't actually know. Uh, I mean, uh, they, um, um, this is a, a full-service uh, health insurance company that uh, uh, sells products in all markets. Uh, so, so I really can't speak. I, I just don't know uh, that segment of their business. Okay, um, one more question, and then uh, uh, we'll open it to the to to the audience. Uh, one thing I noticed is right at the end of the paper, you were talking about the value provided by this pricing structure, by the UTIC company's implicit renewal guarantee pricing structure, and you projected that out over ten years. And what you found was that on a per uh, enrollee basis, the average value provided uh, to each enrollee was a little under four thousand dollars. Uh, but then when you uh, broke out a segment of the uh, uh, this group of employers, uh, when you looked at employer groups who had less than uh, the median number of employees, which was 13 employees, what you found was for that group, the benefits were substantially higher. In fact, they were uh, 10 years out, they were twice as high as they were on average. Uh, they were more than $8,000 um, uh, uh, per employee. So that suggests that really the benefits of this pricing structure are really highly concentrated among the smallest employer groups, the employers with the smallest number, number of employees. What, what, are, what are the implications of that? Yeah, um, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that point because that's something I didn't have time to get to because we, we did break it out. We stratified by the size of, uh, of the groups and, and you, we found that, you know, it, it's, the benefits, the, the welfare gains, if you will, uh, of, um, of, the, of the pricing policy were sort of non-linearly better uh, uh, for the, the smallest groups. Uh, and, and that makes sense, right? Because that's where the reclassification is small. You know, I gave the example in my talk a little while ago about the five-person company. And, and, you know, in that case, you know, one person's uh, health shock really has a dramatic effect on the, the other four people there. And, and so, yes, it certainly attenuates as you go up to 100,000, but it also attenuates, you know, in, in an important way as you go to 20. Uh, you know, if we took the same $25,000 shock and divided it by 20 enrollees, well, you know, then it's a little over 1,000 per person. So, so it gets smaller, but it's, it's acutely, I think, important in those smallest companies. So well, it is a great point. But... Um, that benefit is also there for those who did not experience that adverse health shock, the smaller of the smaller groups that did not experience that adverse health shock. So is it a function of the size of, uh, of spreading that health shock over the size of the pool, or is it just something else that would, uh, uh, something else related to, the, to employer size? Um, no, it, it's it's really that you know your again the, the the welfare benefits are really the the here they're defined as the exposure to uh, risk and and that risk is from um, premiums increasing you know we we you know that that's that's kind of that's why we buy insurance in the first place right because we we'd rather pay a certain amount uh, certain as in you know known ahead of time. Uh, and avoid the possibility of having to maybe pay $100,000 out of pocket. Maybe pay nothing if you're lucky. But, you know, so, so we're able to quantify that, that risk. And so here we're talking about that risk of facing a much greater premium shock given 
uh, a, a potential health status change of, of a member of your group. So that's much, that's much larger. Uh, uh, that, that premium risk, uh, premium vari variability risk is much larger uh, in the smallest groups. So that's where it's really coming from. And, and so if you did a calculation where you broke up, the, if you looked at the smallest groups, maybe you looked at uh, uh, employers that had uh, one to five employees, five to 10, or five to 13, and then, and then so forth, and you did a, a, a per covered, a, uh, a calculation that showed the benefits of the USIC pricing policy per covered life in each of these groups, and then compared that to a community rating counterfactual. Would there be some employer sizes, some firm sizes where community rating not only provided very little additional benefit in terms of protection from higher premiums, but maybe even made things worse? Um, I, think, I think just by virtue of the way that we, um, um, the, the assumptions that we took in our analysis, I, I don't think we could get a, a, a made things worse outcome. Um, but I think what we'd find is that it, it, we did not break it out. Uh, we didn't stratify it to that level of detail. But um, you know what we would, I am pretty confident saying, find that that the uh, the the potential costs of um, experience rating would be far would be the greatest among uh, the smallest companies, two to five, or however you know whatever, one to five, however you want to define it. Um, and and uh, and I'd expect that you know we'd find that the um, the pricing policy is uh, uh, likely to be similar uh, between you know the the hypothetical community rated uh, policy, which I, I agree with your earlier comments that you know we don't encompass all parts of that. Um, so, but we'd probably find it to be similar to what we what we find, but just that the benefits are are far greater over um, you know hypothetical experience rating. Okay, so uh, I've exhausted all of my questions. If anyone in the audience has any, we can, uh, we can go to those now. I would ask you to please wait until the microphone gets to you. Uh, please uh, identify yourself in any relevant affiliations and please make sure you're asking a question uh, because people often forget that part. And if our questions have exhausted, oh, we've got one question from Professor Van Doren in the front there. Professor Van Doren of the Cato Institute. I'll do that first part for you. Okay. Um, I'm puzzled by the $20 in the bill, $20 bill on the sidewalk that's not picked up. I mean, <clears throat> if I hear both of your presentations correctly, that guaranteed renewability here was not legally required. That, that, that's actually, I, I don't want to interrupt you there, but I am. Uh, that, uh, it, HIPAA, uh, 1996 law, it existed. It, uh, it it was it was an enforced policy at that time. So guaranteed renewal was mandated for all states. I think uh, okay. in the small group market, it, that was already exist. Well, it's it's important to be specific about what you mean there because HIPAA does require guaranteed renewability in the sense of if you enroll them in year one, if you sell them an insurance policy in year one, you have to sell them an insurance policy in year two. HIPAA did not require insurance companies to. Uh, include a guaranteed you know, this protection against risk reclassification. Yeah. Uh, that's right. The guaranteed that's right. renewability does provide and did provide even uh, in the in the market even prior to HIPAA. So I'm just asking, sort of as an economist, I'm just puzzled. That you just think somebody somewhere, some firm would defect from this 
sort of equilibrium to try to make more money. They and can't. Because, well, I, I mean, I, that was exactly, I mean, as Michael said it, I mean, that was exactly my prior. And as you said, th that, you know, th this is something that as soon as we, you know, th this could only exist in, in, in a market, uh, I thought, this could only exist in kind of a, a concentrated market, um, a concentrated insurance market uh, that would enable insurers to get, to, to essentially get away with this. But I, I think what I, and that was my prior, uh, and then I think where I've, where I've landed on this now, where we've landed, I'll, I'll speak for myself here, is that, you know, I, I think the value, um, well, it's probably two things. I, th I think in inertia might be a real factor in this market that uh, a, a lot of employers kind of set it and forget it. And that the, the true value of, the, of, of what Mark described so eloquently in here and, and in his published work is, is really high compared to, um, you know, the potential gains of, of constantly looking to defect. Um, and so, you know, my son, we're only looking at one insurer, uh, so I can't speak to what other insurers in this, in these markets were doing, but I would expect that they all recognize that, uh, consumers here, and that's ultimately the enrollees, the employees, you know, really value this stability. Yeah. So that's actually the point. So I'm trying to cheer up Michael here a little more. So nobody, <laughs> uh, it's, this is not a gentleman's agreement. Uh, it's, uh, incentive compatible, which means... If um, a lot of small groups bought guaranteed renewability coverage, they'd have to pay a little more than if they just bought coverage for whatever happened that year, and then in the future you can get a jump in your premium. Um, but they would prefer to do that, assuming their workers are risk averse. And uh, of course, at the end of the year, the groups that didn't have anybody get sick will say, what a dumb thing we did. We paid insurance for something we never collected on. But, I always try to tell people it's the best thing with insurance is not to collect rather than to collect, but people don't always Especially look for at life it. insurance, right? Yeah, yeah, look at it that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, still, uh, the, the next period, uh, if a firm said, okay, we'll try to pick off those people by offering them lower premiums but not guaranteed renewability, the consumers would say thanks but no thanks because we want to be protected for the next period too. So in a sense, I had this, I think, uh, in my notes and didn't get around to saying it. The beauty part of guaranteed renewability is each period the, uh, the payment is made, you can think of it kind of put in a, a bank account to cover the higher premiums for the small number of groups that experience the uh, high risk. Uh, and, the, and it's already there. You can't get it back if you didn't experience a high risk, but you'll want to put money in that bank account next period, even though the chances you'll actually benefit from it are small, because if you did have a person who got really sick, it would be terrible. So I hope that you sort of, it's, you already gave it the office. Was <laughs> although, although uh, when the ACA passed and uh, uh, insurers were facing community rating and guaranteed renewability as we know it was going to end, some insurers did take money, uh, like Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina took money out of that bank and gave it away to their oh, enrollees. Sure. Yeah, once it, was, uh, it was heralded as a success of the Affordable Care Act when the insurance company took money that was de dedicated for sick people and gave it away to healthy people instead. Yeah, yeah, no, but, that's right. but Peter, it's really hard to overstate just how much mainstream health economists agree with your suspicion that uh, that that nobody defected from this arrangement. Uh, I think everyone uh, assumed that. I think before I read this paper, I assumed 
that that's what was happening. Uh, which, I wrote it. I assumed it. <laughs> right, which is which is why this this paper is 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 so important and and worth having a forum on, even if you you only get thirty people to show up because the title is reclassification risk in the small group health insurance market, and no one knows what that means. What it really means is that actually markets did a much better job of protecting the sick against uh, high premiums than, uh, than the conventional wisdom holds. And, and this has particular salience right now, as Mark mentioned, because we just got a rule from the federal government that said that short-term plans can now last uh, initially up to 12 months or be renewed, uh, the initial contract renewed for up to 36 months and multiple uh, of contracts of, of these short-term contracts can be tied together with a renewal guarantee, a s- separate standalone insurance policy called the renewal guarantee. That means when you sign up for that second plan, you're not going to be re-underwritten. And when you sign up for that third plan, you're not going to get re-underwritten, even if you got cancer or you got uh, diabetes or some other expensive condition. Uh, and what that means is not only that the, this, this paper suggests that not only will those arrangements be stable and provide secure long-term health insurance protection through the short-term market, but it also means that they might improve the ACA's risk pools. They might actually help hold down premiums in the uh, Affordable Care Act's exchange plans. Why? Because what a renewal guarantee does is it lets a sick person keep paying healthy person premiums, and when you can do that, you have no reason to go into the exchange uh, for the community rate, the protection the community rating provides. So uh, it, th- th- this paper says something about a very, very timely uh, debate and a very misunderstood feature of the health insurance market. Everyone thinks that, oh, the new short-term plans rule is going to sabotage the ACA by pulling healthy people out of those risk pools. Well, it might, but it's also going to keep sick people out of those risk pools, and that improves the, uh, the, the risk profile in, the, in those health insurance plans. Uh, yes, sir. Bobby Pestronk, a, a citizen. Could there be something very specific about the years that you studied, about the states that you studied, and the way in which very high-risk people were excluded from being insured that result in the effects that you found? Um, those are interesting states that are, are being insured. Uh, they're not necessarily representative of, of states as a whole, both in terms of their insurance markets and in terms of the way people in those states might be covered. Um, there could be, um, in, those, in many of those states, uh, age groups, gender groups, racial groups that might not have had insurance, not, may not have been able to be insured or weren't insured through their employers, whose increased costs don't need to be passed along through premia because the, the company that's insuring the, the people that are paying premia, uh, their costs are known and are constant, and so there's no need to raise premia from year to year. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a fair point, uh, you know, that we only, we, only, we only observe what we observe, and, uh, but I guess I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't dismiss, you know, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Texas as, uh, uh, as necessarily, you know, uh, outliers. I mean, I'm from Illinois. I mean, people are pretty normal there, and so are insurance markets, um, mostly. I guess I can't speak for politicians. Uh, but, uh, 
Uh, but I think, you know, it, it, it's a fair point uh, that, uh, you know, we can't, uh, we, we can't see beyond our, our own data. Uh, um, but, and, and I've already said it's a, you know, it is a convenient sample that uh, um, uh, they are lighter touch uh, from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, you know, that said, though, you know, I, I think we're seeing, you know, just a, a, a pretty, a pretty, you know, at least to the extent we can measure it, uh, broadly representative um, sample of, of small companies in these. You know, we have some uh, 12,000 companies uh, across these 10 states. Uh, I'll admit Wyoming is, uh, doesn't contribute a lot. There's not, uh, not a lot of data there. Not a lot of people there either. Um, but, um, uh, uh, but in terms of, you know, Illinois and, and Texas and, you know, the other states that we're looking at, Pennsylvania, um, you know, I, I, I feel pretty comfortable that, uh, that we're seeing sort of a nice cross-section of small companies as they were operating. So I have a, a policy comment. Uh, I think uh, Tony's right. There's no particular reason to think that there was anything weird about high risks and low risks in these states compared to others. But the other point is guaranteed renewability isn't a solution for all of our woes. It only works for people who start off a normal risk, and then it protects them against being uh, um, uh, having to pay high-risk premiums or losing coverage. Uh, because they become high risk. The people who are already high risk, who are unlucky enough to be high risk and uninsured, this doesn't offer a protection for them. And so on my slides I had, but skipped, you need something like a subsidized high risk pool. I regard that as much better than community rating. Uh, subsidized high risk pool to pick up those people who already fell through the cracks. Uh, and, uh, and then hopefully if everybody bought guaranteed renewable insurance and almost everybody starts off uh, young and healthy, uh, the high-risk pools will gradually wither away, uh, and so everybody uh, will be protected. But uh, there is a backlog of, of people that we care about that uh, would be mistreated by a purely market-based system uh, because it's kind of too late for them uh, to buy guaranteed renewable insurance. And, and I guess just, just more to the point also that, you know, we, we're still talking about small groups, and I think, you know, the most recent or the data at, at around this time suggests that about only 50% of small groups offer insurance. So, I mean, this is necessarily the selected sample of firms that chose to offer. Uh, and so, yeah, so that probably does make them at least at baseline, probably, probably a bit healthier. Um, but, but again, going forward, you know, they're subject to the same risks of a catastrophic uh, or a chronic condition uh, I mean, the, en the enrollees, the employees of those firms and their dependents are, you know, subject to the same risk. Uh. Um, quickly, please. So I guess given the economies of scale that uh, Dr. Pauly um, mentioned and given the risks to um, those who aren't currently insured that guaranteed renewal doesn't protect. Is it only a, a libertarian principle that we just ought to let uh, individual insurers um, sell products to people who might not be fully informed about the cost of the benefits of those products to argue against uh, some larger governmental solution, which does guarantee that everybody be covered and that the excess profits that individual firms derive uh, from their excess costs 
um, and excess premiums um, uh, that would otherwise be reduced by everybody being insured and having uh, a uh, more comprehensive uh, form of um, insurance coverage in this country. So it's just well, the, the, the principle of libertarianism that argues I can take that. a stab at that one, and it's, uh, the answer is there's a nirvana fallacy embedded in your question, which is that there's some sort of world where, ever, where everyone, even someone, is perfectly informed about all the costs and benefits of, of this health insurance of a, a policy or that, or where consumers are fully informed or their representatives are fully informed both of the costs and benefits and of the consumer preferences. And none of those worlds exist. I mean, there's, there's no nirvana here. We're, we have... We, we have consumers who have information problems. We have uh, policymakers and regulators who have information problems. And the question is not, how do we find some mythical nirvana where uh, perfectly informed people are going to write the rules and uh, write the contracts and everybody's going to get all the health care they need? The challenge is, okay, given that we have these uh, information problems on all sides, what set of rules is going to give us the most of what we want, which is Secure access to care for people who uh, get a, an expensive long-term illness, uh, and part of that security means that the people who are who promise to per pay for the care don't renege on that promise. And uh, the answer that this paper provides, and that Mark's work uh, points to, is that uh, those those arrangements are are going to be most secure uh, when uh, everybody uh, has an incentive to when you give the people paying those, uh, uh, making those promises and, and paying those claims, uh, the biggest incentive to keep those promises. And if you just let, uh, uh, you make it in their financial incentive to do so. I think uh, Mark has said it before here, he said it before in the green room, that insurance companies will do anything for money, even be very nice to people if, if, if you pay them for that. And what uh, I think uh, this body of work points toward what is the conclusion that, if the consumers are the ones controlling the money and you don't have these community rating price controls, then uh, naturally these incentives will emerge that, uh, uh, that reward insurance companies who keep their promises. They'll develop products that make it easier for them to keep uh, those promises that they make to the sick. Uh, and that will provide more secure coverage uh, than uh, a different kind of guarantee like community rating, which does say the insurance companies can't charge you more if you get sick, but come, it comes with all sorts of other problems like, well, it literally penalizes insurance companies for providing high-quality coverage to the sick, and then you see an erosion in coverage. So, uh, Let me just make a, a, a theoretical point, or a political point, I guess. Uh, real markets will always lose out to perfect government, uh, but that doesn't discourage me too much since I've seen real markets and I've never seen perfect government. Uh, so if you had a government that could figure out what is the type of coverage each person would want to have uh, and uh, make that available to them, uh, and then they'd have to raise the money from taxes, head taxes, I guess, taxes that don't distort behavior, um, that would be great. But I just think that's a, a you know, pipe dream. Uh, and if you look at, uh, actually, if you look at, I don't know about small group insurance. I do know that individual insurance pre-ACA was not very profitable. Uh, um, the profit margins were quite slim. And, and also a lot of firms were getting out of the business, which sort of suggests that there weren't a lot of money to be made. Uh, the most profitable part of the insurance market nowadays, I don't know if people know what it is, it's uh, Medicare Advantage coverage. Uh, and uh, that's a government-controlled market. 
So uh, QED, I guess, or something. Uh, people will be people, uh, but uh, you need to, um, uh, 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 to some extent, of course, you bet on who you trust. Uh, but uh, I guess I'm predisposed to trust markets, but I'm willing to be um, talked out of it. Since I, I, I do believe uh, that there are some people who are so misinformed, as I said with my joke, are running around without health insurance. That's crazy. Uh, and so I have long blacked a individual mandate with teeth to make sure that people have at least basic coverage and aren't that unprotected. And on that note, uh, I will thank both Tony and Mark for coming for your comments. I want to thank all of you for coming and for your questions. Um, I, uh, Tony mentioned Illinois. I... I uh, I realized that when I introduced you, I said University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign because I've got a colleague who taught there for a long time. Mm-hmm. I should have said University of Illinois-Chicago. My apologies. I meant no slight to the, oh, it, the slight city was, of Chicago. The slight was only to Urbana-Champaign. Um, and uh, the lunch uh, will be held on the second floor in our George Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. You'll find restrooms on the second floor on your way to lunch. Uh, look for the yellow wall. Thank you very much. Thank you.